And it was one of those days where there's black ice all over everything. And we got on the ramp of the, the, of the interstate. People were going really slow. And as soon as we hit the interstate, it was just boom, boom. And then brace yourself, right? Because you, you're coming for impact. And so I braced myself, and then we hit the wall. I want to give you that picture. Many of you probably can tell a story similar of, of bracing yourself as we come to this text, actually, tonight. Um, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. The, uh, the reality is, is that this passage that we're looking at tonight actually has the ability to knock us right off of our feet, basically, um, to kind of hit us right where it counts and to cause us to do some pretty serious self-examination when we think about what it means to be followers of Jesus and we see what Paul is doing here in the midst of this letter. Um, the reason for that is simple, because the kingdom of God is in conflict with the kingdom of the enemy. And we live in a world where the constant flow of our lives is told to go one direction, and that direction is in contrast to the direction that Jesus calls his people, and that's at the heart of his kingdom. And so his kingdom followers look very different. So when these two things, when you kind of get to the core of the kingdom, and I would suggest to you as we get into this text in the next week as well, we're, we're really getting into the core of what it means to be a Christ follower, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So this message should have relevance for everyone. When you get to the core and you, and you see what it is, see it for what it is, that there's a conflict, conflict and a clash that takes place between that and what we know to be true in the rest of the world. The controlling theme still is live as worthy citizens. We looked at that last week, chapter 1, verse 27. This is what's still driving the train here, is this thought about being worthy citizens, being worthy members of the kingdom, of God's kingdom, and what it means to live as worthy citizens of the kingdom. So that's what's driving on here. And I just want to encourage you as we go through this text tonight to, to listen to this message. I would encourage you to listen to any message from anybody who's preaching prayerfully. How should you listen? Prayerfully. Just ask the Lord to speak as we walk through this text a little bit together. The first thing that, that I want to point out is obviously verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any, if any comfort from love, any participation or fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy or compassion or mercy, those words can be translated lots of different ways. This is the starting point for where we're headed in just a minute. And we can't jump over what Paul does here in chapter 2, verse 1, to get to verses 2, 3, and 4, or what follows after that at all, or we end up in a, in a, in a bit of a mess, actually. This is the source of this life that we're called to live as members and citizens of the kingdom. The source of it comes from this renewal that God is doing in the hearts of his people. These words that he uses here, this is an emotional appeal. He's appealing to the heart. Think of these words, encouragement, comfort, fellowship or participation, affection, sympathy. These are the kinds of words that are very much making an appeal to the heart, to the emotion. And I think it's quite appropriate because at the end of chapter 1, he's just been talking about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. These are, he's writing to a people that are, are living in a day where, where their, their, their stand for the gospel of Jesus is causing them to suffer. And so he turns very quickly to this encouragement and says these words that, that appeal to this, to this heart life. And he's not appealing to an individual here. Think about these words. There's no affection. There's no mercy. There's no compassion. There's no encouragement. There's no comfort for one by himself or herself. He's not appealing to an, he's appealing to the corporate body in Philippi, saying that in this body, in this community in Philippi, there are all the resources that you need in Christ Jesus for comfort, for encouragement, for compassion, for mercy. These are the resources that you have before you. Paul says if. 
he uses this word kind of in a tricky way. He's preaching to the choir here. He's saying if, meaning you and I know both that these are real realities. We live in this experience day by day, Philippians, that these things are true, that we find consolation and strength in Christ, encouragement in Christ, that we find comfort from the love of God which was poured out for us in Christ Jesus, that we find in each other compassion and mercy to make living in this world um, something that we can actually do. So that if is, is really important, and it's, it's clear that it's true for Paul, it's true for the Philippians. My question is, is it true for us today? Is it true for us? Do we know this, this encouragement in Christ? Do we know this comfort in love? Do we know this partnership together in the gospel? These weren't, these weren't um, concepts which, they, which the early church just understood and said, yeah, these would be great in real life, but we're really busy and we're kind of plugging along with our own lives and I've got a lot to do. These were, these were life-shaping, defining gospel realities. These were evidences in the community that Jesus was really real. And so that's the, that's the first question or the first point that I want to make to, to us tonight is, is, is Jesus being made real in our life together? Do we know him? Do we experience him in our day to day? Is Jesus alive? Is he, is he changing life? Is he changing life in a, what is a very hard world sometimes? I think if we could just kind of be honest for a minute and lift off the... the um, the impressions that we all leave with one another, if you could kind of look under the hood for every one of us in this room, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of challenge. There's a lot of sorrow. And we were here yesterday, almost 20, over 24 hours ago, um, grieving together with Amy and Chris over the loss of Mia um, in, in saying that these are not the way things were supposed to be. And there's, that's something real for each one of us. And what Paul is saying here at the beginning of this, of this kind of exhortation of exhortations, of his beginning to, to lay the kind of the big, heavy grand slam on the church in Philippi, is he's saying, this won't make any sense to you unless you know the love of Jesus in your life. This won't mean a thing. This can never be worked out apart from these realities that you and I are know, know are true. So he's saying, if these things, if these things, if these things, parentheses, we both know these are real. We both experience this every day in our life together, in our life in Christ. This kind of encouragement, this kind of comfort. And that's where it all begins. That's where it all begins. We can't get beyond that. We can never get beyond that. Um, he says, if these things are real, and you know that they are, then make my joy complete. It's kind of an interesting, that's the only command that he gives in this passage. It just shows the, the, the depth of the interconnectedness between Paul and the Philippians, between Christian brothers and sisters, is that there's a sense in which when you're living your life fully for Jesus, my joy becomes real. When I see somebody who's ignited in a love for God, and I see them giving their lives to serve him in, 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 in their everyday life where they've been sent, my joy becomes more complete as I watch you live out your life. That's what he's saying. So make my joy complete. It's not kind of an egotistical command. It's just a reality of Christian fellowship that he's pointing out. And how does he say to make it complete? He says to have the same mind. Be unified. We looked at this a little bit last week. He picked that up in verse 27 where he said, um, he said to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says he wants you to have the same mind. 
And there's a bunch of phrases that he uses here that all kind of mean the same thing. So I don't necessarily think that we need to unpack each one of them, but just to make the broad point that, that what Paul is saying is that, that he wants them, in order to walk as worthy citizens, to walk as one, to have the same mind together. There was some indication in Philippi that we get from this letter even in chapter 4 that things weren't all kind of rosy, that there was some internal strife. We've talked about this many times going on in this community. So we don't want to build an idealistic picture of what's going on in Philippi. And if Paul is writing from Rome, we know that in Rome there was a lot of conflict between the, the probably the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, that they weren't really figuring out how to get along. So this was a problem that was going on in the churches of Paul's day that he wanted to address head on. Um, so the book of Romans climaxes in this call to unity, this call to welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed you. So Paul's saying, if you want to walk worthily, if you want to make my joy complete, and you know the love of God in your life, you know the reality of Jesus, then be one. Be one together. The verb here, to think, is used again and again and again, this, this word. And it doesn't mean so much to have an intellectual content that's consistent across the board in the community. It means to have the same mindset. It means to have the same purpose the same aim, the same priorities as a group of people to be digging into something together. We, we kind of hit this, I think, four weeks ago maybe. We talked about true community through, through mission, that they've understood, as Paul has exhibited for them, that their life doesn't mean anything outside of the gospel of Jesus and that everything that they experience, every one of their circumstances, is to be an opportunity to see this gospel, this good news of Jesus, go forth into the world and bring about change in the lives of people. And that's the same mind. That's the thinking. Literally, it's, it's thinking the same thing. And then he says it again, thinking one thing. That's the one thing. That's the purpose, the aim, that priority that these people are called to have in Philippi. And that Paul has shown in his own life. He said, have the same love as well. Having the same love, this, the same source of love in Christ, the same motivation and the same object of this love in God and in others. This is defining. You get this picture of this unified team. We used the battle imagery before, but think about you know it's the the the, the infantry and the cavalry are going to have the same purpose in mind. They're not at odds. They're not at cross purposes. They're thinking together, and that's what he says he wants them to live like um, as the people of God in Philippi. Their unity is not merely an absence of division. It's not just an absence of division or discord but it's the presence of a, Christ, of a Christ-centered vision of reality and of life. So it's not the absence only, but it's the presence of Christ invading and infiltrating every part of who they are as people. So that's what he says. And so the question is then, and this is where we get to, the, I think, the meat of this passage, is how do we maintain this kind of love and unity and peace in the Christian family? in the family that Paul is writing to at Philippi. How do these things hold together? How do they continue on from one degree of glory to the next, so to speak? How does this continue? That's the question. How does this sustain in the community of God's people that I want us to consider? And here's where the train wreck happens. Here's where the, here's where the brace yourself part happens. When Paul gets into these verses 3 and 4, that he takes on in a very kind of succinct and pithy way, the, the, the whole dominant paradigm of the world with a few little sentences, which is rooted in the example of the king himself. And that's next week as we get into verses 5 through 11. But rooted in that example. Verses 1 through 4 don't make any sense outside of verses 5 through 11. But this is where he, put, he, he puts the root of it. And it's simple. It's, it's through this thing called humility. It's through humility. 
Verse 3, in humility, he says, count others as more significant than yourselves. This thing of humility that runs counter to the way of the world all around us, of pride, a way of pursuing self-promotion, self-advancement, a way of pursuing prestige. This is exactly the opposite of the quest to be the best or the quest to be better than the next guy, the quest to kind of prevail over everyone else. Uh, this language I, I found in, in, in one who was commenting on these passages, I thought it was worth sharing. He says, this is opposite of the way that, stra- that, that strangely addictive and debasing cocktail of vanity and public opinion. That strangely addictive and debasing cocktail of vanity and public opinion to which we so often find ourselves um, enslaved for which we often find ourselves performing and motivating and driving our actions is this longing to be noticed, this longing to be somebody, this longing to be um, on top, so to speak. Humility is the opposite of that way of life that's rooted in an understanding of our creatureliness and our inadequacy before an almighty God. It starts there with that God focus, that God is God and I'm not. And that then produces a kind of poverty of spirit, ringing some bells here to the first big speech of the kingdom in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. That produces this kind of poverty of spirit that leads us to think of others and treat others preferentially over ourselves, to be fundamentally other-centered in our life. That's what humility is, this God focus that produces a kind of poverty of spirit that leads us to an other focus, others focus, an others preference in the life that we lead. And Christian love and unity that Paul is commending here for worthy citizens of of the kingdom of Jesus is fundamentally incompatible with the way of life that the world proclaims. It can only be walked into by humility. It can't be walked into by this way of self self-promotion or prestige-seeking. This is a pretty famous quote from Henry Nouwen. Many of you, I'm sure, have probably read Henry Nouwen. He died in 1996. But in many ways, is one of the most sought-after, I think, authors, spiritually speaking, just on spirituality. And he says this, The society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go is up, making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record. That's what draws attention gets us on the front page of the newspaper and offers us the rewards of money and fame. The way of Jesus is radically different. It is not the way of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It is going to the bottom, staying behind the set, and choosing the last place. Why is the way of Jesus worth choosing? Because it is the way of the kingdom. It's the way Jesus took and the way that brings everlasting life. He contrasts there these two ways, this way of pursuing our gain versus this way of pursuing Christ. So Paul gives a few negatives and a few positives. He says, don't do anything by selfish ambition or rivalry or by conceit, by vainglory, by kind of puffing up your appearance when there's no substance behind it, by seeking after status. This was a big deal in first century Roman culture to have status. This was what made you somebody, even perhaps more than citizenship, was who you knew and and the power of the people that you knew to be exalted. So this, what Paul's saying here, gives it a real bite in that day, just as it does in ours. 
And he says, instead of not doing these things, what does he say to do? He says, in humility to count others as more significant, literally to think of them as more valuable than yourselves. And then he says also to um, not look after your own interests, but to look to the interests of others. Let me read you somebody's comments on this. Considering each other better than yourselves is not, of course, a matter of condescending to offer the occasional polite compliment to one's fellow Christian while continuing to bask in the untroubled assurance of one's own superiority. Nor, on the other hand, is it to grovel in a perpetually self-doubting or self-despising inferiority complex. It means to think and speak more highly of others than of oneself, to value their needs and their achievements before one's own, to give preference to each other without distinction, not only to the good, the strong, and the beautiful. To regard others as better than oneself means to look, look out for their rights and not just for one's own, to invest one's best creative effort and energy, one's best creative effort and energy in securing and maintaining other people's best interest. Where does our best go? What do we give to the people around us? What do we give to our spouse? What do we give to our children? What do we give to this community? What do we give to the people that we encounter in our neighborhoods? Our best? All of our creative energy? Or is that going for somebody else's glory? Namely mine. I want to contrast these two things with you with these phrases. The one phrase, the phrase of the world's dominant paradigm is uh, me at any cost, right? Me at any cost. I'm going to do whatever I can and use whoever I can and, and whatever's at my disposal to exalt myself at any cost versus the way of the kingdom. Love at any cost. Love at any cost. Because Christ lives in me. I'm going to do whatever I can with whoever I meet, however often that I can, to seek their interest and their rights, their betterment at whatever cost. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the crash when Jesus encounters the world. And that's what Paul is calling people to in Philippi. And that's what he's calling us to. I think it's very, very uh, good for us to ask these questions. Do, 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 do the situations and circumstances and interests and needs of other people really play any role in my life? Do they play any role in my life? Does it change something about me? Does it inconvenience me in any way when somebody else has an issue, when somebody else is suffering, when somebody else is inconvenienced? Those are the kinds of questions that followers of Jesus ask themselves. Does it have any kind of, do they have any kind of role in my life? And then I would say as well that these things are really easy to comprehend in some ways, aren't they? They're easy to comprehend and they're easy to talk about. It's easy to talk about being other-centered. It's easy to talk about considering others as more important than our own. But it's so hard to live out when somebody else is getting the spotlight and you're not. When somebody else is getting exalted and you're being humbled. It's so hard to live out. This way that Jesus gives to his followers that Paul gives here to the church in Philippi and therefore to us. This way can only be afforded by those whose, 
whose personal dignity has been reconstituted around the death and resurrection of Jesus. Who know that they know that they know that they are forever someone because they've been united with their king in death and in resurrection. And who also know that like Jesus, that this way of the kingdom is the only way to exaltation. We know these, this line well, for God, um, he casts down the proud, but he lifts up the lowly. That's the God of the kingdom. That's the God that Paul is serving. And that's the God who enables this, which I want to come back to as I end, who enables encouragement in Christ and comfort in love and fellowship in the spirit and affection and mercy. This is the God who's pouring out life to his children in the midst of a broken and hurting and painful world. And it's because of this life, it's because of Jesus living in us that we then can embrace this new life of the kingdom and lay our lives down. And this is the way that unity prevails in the church. This is the way that community happens in the church is by the way of humility being embraced by the followers of Jesus. Ralph is sitting here. He, he gave me this phrase. I had no idea he was going to be here today. Um, but this is the picture of the Jesus-permeated church. That's the phrase that Ralph gave me. Ralph's been in church planning in Boston for many, many years. A Jesus-permeated church is a church where people look out for the interests of others and not their own. It's a church where people consider others, those sitting next to you right now, as more important than you because you have the life of Jesus living in you. So this is the call. And I pray that, that God will give us his grace to embrace it with everything that we have. This is the one way to live.